Um, well, welcome to all of you to this last in the series of three talks um, and debates of the LSC put on with the European Philosophy Forum, which address the theme of this year's uh, festival, How the Light Gets In. The theme is Error, Lies and Adventure. How the Light Gets In is an extraordinary festival. It's been here for only five years, and it's already the largest philosophy festival in the world. Um, you'll be able to go there yourselves at the end of May this year. I think it believes on the, help me, Hillary, is it the 10th? Gosh, something uh, like that. Quite soon. 23rd of May. 23rd like of May. Um, and it will go on till the end of um, the month into June. Um, I've had a switch of notes here, so I don't know quite what I'm doing, but I'm going to describe this event to you, um, which is about the pursuit of adventure. Since Plato, the greatest intellectual adventure has often been thought to be the pursuit of truth. Might there be an alternative intellectual adventure, or more than one? And if so, in what would these adventures consist? Would they be a dangerous threat to hard-won insights, or would they be the very purpose of thought itself? This third and final event in the series explores whether the purpose of science, philosophy, and indeed life is to uncover the truth, or whether adventure might provide an alternative. So, let me begin straight away by asking each of our panelists, first of all, um, um, Stephen Rose, who is Professor of... Uh, biology will do, actually. Yes, no, 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 <laughs> Professor of Biology and Director of the Brain and Mind, uh, Brain and Behavior Research Group Very at the good. Open University. And he is the author of many books, including most recently, Genes, Cells and Brains, with Hilary Rose. Um, on my left is Hilary Lawson, postmodern philosopher, whose theory of closure marks a return to metaphysics. Very interesting turn, that is, for Hillary, whom I've worked with for many, many, many years in different incarnations. He is now the director of the Institute of Art and Ideas. And next to him, Barry Smith, professor of philosophy at Birkbeck University of London and director of the Institute's School of Advanced Study. Um, he's worked on the nature of taste, I think some of you will know, and particularly on the philosophy of wine. And I'm wondering whether our pursuit tonight will lead us in those directions. Um, just a little thought from me to begin with. I mean, since Plato, uh, the greatest intellectual adventure is often thought to be the pursuit of truth. And he noted, the philosopher is in love with truth. That is not with the changing world of sensation, which is the object of opinion, but with the unchanging reality, which is the object of knowledge. 1,500 years later, Nietzsche wrote, there is nothing more necessary than truth, and in comparison with it, everything else has only secondary value. However, Nietzsche also managed to say, and this is one of my very favorite quotes of all time, truth is ugly. We have art in order not to perish of truth. So, let me begin by asking, first of all, Stephen Rose, then Hillary, then Barry, should we live in pursuit of truth? Um, well, thanks, Lisa. Can I ask, because I'm not sure where the mic is, can you hear me at the back? Okay. I'll try to go on speaking like this. Well, I suppose um, half a century ago, when I was young and enthusiastic as a starting researcher, I would have said that, indeed, the great adventure and the great purpose of my life, at any rate, was the pursuit of truth, and that truth was seen in science and by research to try to understand 
the ways in which the material reality of the world could be approached. As I've grown older, I suppose I've grown wiser. I'm less in love with science than I was, as the nature of science itself has changed and become tied in with um, commercial, political and ideological goals in a much sharper way than it used to be. And now I suppose I would say two things. Firstly, I now would concede that there are many forms of truth, not just the truth of the scientist and the, and the social scientist, but also the truths of artists and poets. And secondly, and perhaps more important, I would also insist now that the most important thing in life is the pursuit not so much of truth, but of justice. And if truth follows in the, in the heels of justice, so much the better. Thank you, Stephen. Hilary, should we be living in pursuit of truth? Right. Well, one of the strange things about truth is, on the one hand, we seem to be so close to it, and on the other hand, we seem to be so far away. I mean, in some sense, we know a great deal, and uh, just a click away on Wikipedia, we, someone seems to know almost everything. And yet, the big questions, we don't seem to get any closer to answering you know, why is there something rather than nothing? What is the ultimate nature of the universe? Uh, what is the purpose of our life? And so forth. And indeed, when philosophers have sought to uh, get to the truth, and as we've already heard, philosophy has been focused on often trying to uncover the truth, the more we try, somehow, the more it recedes. And so the question is, why are we in this very bizarre situation that it seems to be so close, and yet it is quite so elusive? And the sort of answer that I, I want to give to you is that uh, is initially a rather surprising one, that I don't think that language and thought describe the world. The world is not something that's out there which we might come along with a correct map and it would correctly identify what it is so that we could indeed arrive at the truth. Instead, I want to propose to you that language and thought are, in a sense, provide us with metaphors for the world. And there's no one true metaphor. The metaphors are ways that we might make sense of the world. They can be immensely powerful, but they're not the same thing as the world. And what is the world, you might ask me? Well, I can't give you an answer to that, because in order to do so, I'd have to use language and thought in order to express it to you. And what I would express is what... I can do within language, within the framework and the way in which language works. So I can provide you... So my first go at trying to give you an indication of how I would want you to hold the world is to say, think of the world as being open, as having rich, dense quality, but is nothing in particular. What we do is we make of the world particularities, and it's language and thought and, indeed, experience and sensation that provide those particularities. Let me give you one very small example of that, so you might sense what I might be trying to say here. Our senses take the rich openness of the world and they respond in very specific ways. So take the eye, for example. The eye is full of those photoreceptors that we've all heard about. And they've got one function, they fire or they don't fire. And so they take the whole openness of the world, which you might think of as being the atoms and molecules and photons of the scientific story, but I would say, no, 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 we don't, we don't know what that world is out there. But we take the openness of the world, and our eyes somehow respond to it. 
And they turn all of that richness and complexity into the simplicity of the firing or not firing of a neuron. So it takes the openness and it turns it into particularity. And what we then do is we take the huge array of response from the eye, 127 million photoreceptors, and we find particularity in that array, a group here, a colour, a line, and so forth, which enables us to see things as blue or whatever, or what other character or shape it might have. And those, those things that we see, the blue, the shape, whatever, are no more how the world is than the firing of the neuron. The world is not the same thing as the firing of the neuron, just as the world is not blue or green or coloured or lined or made of objects. That is what we do. We turn that openness into particularities and language and thought are the final layer of that, the high-level closure, as I would call it, which enable us to do what we think we do, which is describe the world, but actually we're holding the world as something. We hold the world as blue at the sensory level. We hold it as something in thought. And so to come to the overall question, should we be pursuing truth? Well, in one sense, we should pursue the effectiveness of our metaphors and we should refine those metaphors and try and make them work better. But we shouldn't imagine that we can arrive. And rather than truth, I suppose I'd rather advocate something which is closer to the notion of wisdom. But what, it, what we should try and do is identify uh, stories and metaphors of the world which are useful and valuable to us and enable us to do new things and indeed to create new worlds in which to do things. Thank you, Hilary. Um, Barry, I don't know whether you want to elaborate on something completely different, because it seems we've we've, we've no, rolled I, away. I, I'd quite like to have a, a little shot at that. Okay. Um, the thing that's always sort of striking me, and I think it's struck a number of people, is that when, when you have people who set out to be deniers of truths, and, and maybe we would put Hillary in that camp, they also take themselves to have uttered some in their pronouncements. So, you know, he tells us that thought and language are not really representational, or he tells us that you know, we're relying on metaphors. And when he says those things, and I think he's very sincere about it, he's aiming to say something true. He's aiming to say something which he, he's deeply committed to, and he hopes it's right. And I think his, his attempts and thought to kind of figure this out wouldn't really be worth our while as they are if we took it that this was mere playfulness, if it was really just an attempt to kind of invent some language and, and relate it in a number of different ways. Now, he talks about metaphor, and I, I agree that there is there's a lot of metaphor that we use in our language. In fact, it seems to be ineliminable. But there's some metaphors that are very good, that are, as it were, apt, where we think we're really getting closer to the way things actually are by using that metaphor. I don't find Hillary's metaphor of closure terribly helpful. It doesn't work for me. Obviously, it works for him, maybe for some of you. But I think there is this idea that in trying to say something, and, and what Hillary's trying to do is not be deceived, as it were. I heard that a little bit in Stephen's comments too. Not to be deceived, not to be fooled, not to be taken in by things that pretend to be uh, aiming at truth or pretend to deliver on truth, but might actually be distorting or might have factors in there that can be misleading. Now that aim not to be fooled or deceived, that's an aim for truthfulness. That's an aim to, to try to get something accurate, something right. 
So it can't really go away. So there's a sort of curious paradox, and this was something Bernard Williams pointed out. Paradox between this desire to be truthful and not to be fooled or deceived in our thinking, and a suspicion about truth as though it was unobtainable, as though truths were not really there. There are lots of truths that are there, and Hillary, of course, relies on them, as we all do. He says, language and thought aren't representational, but he knew how to get here this evening. And, you know, if we want to get around London, the map, which is not, it's not very accurate, but it'll do. And it helps us navigate where we want to go. Somebody said to me, you know, is there a coffee shop on the corner? And if I say yes, if they go there and there isn't one, I've misled them. And if we don't believe in ordinary truths, simple truths of this sort, we don't get very far. We can't distinguish between truth and lying. We can't distinguish between being deceived and not deceiving others. What's tricky is when we go from those everyday truths, which I think are just unavoidable, up to something slightly more contentious and difficult, like historical interpretation, and even scientific theorizing and trying to find out what the truth of, of certain scientific claims is. So, so, yes, there's a bedrock of truth. Can't live with it, can't live without it. Uh, but when we're trying to deny it, I think we end up in a kind of paradox that leads us nowhere. Can I... Uh... I think I might want to come back. I want to come back. I think Stephen, okay. Stephen needs to come back to tell us what truth is for him as a scientist as well, which is well, not quite the same, perhaps, as a metaphoric truth. Well, I want to come back first of all on what Hillary said. I'm, I'm not so far away from what Barry was saying. Then um, differences may open up between us as time goes on. But I was, I mean, what Hillary seemed to be doing was coming very close, and I'm not a philosopher, to um, advancing the famous philosophical distinction between first-person and third-person observation, and that is, in your observation of what was blue and the world is not blue, the world is, 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 not, is not lined and so on, you are very close to what conventional philosophy speaks of as qualia, um, which subjective experiences. But in order to do that, you used a number of very clear words, and I wrote them down. You said there are 127 million photoreceptors in the eye. You talked about neurons firing and not firing, and you assumed in a saying that that you were talking about something objective that you could measure in the world around, and therefore you could rely on in making the statements that you just made. So there's, I think that you, there is a fundamental paradox in the position that you're adopting. What I would go on to say is also, as an, someone who's an evolutionary biologist, is that if, in fact, humans had not evolved in order to operate in the world as if there was a material reality in the world and we knew it and could identify and respond to it, we would not survive very long. Um, it is just to extend what Barry said about Hillary getting here this evening. If Hillary stepping on in front of the ro uh, bus on the road had mistaken the bus for a pink marshmallow, he would actually not get here very well either. So we have to make judgments about the world and about the material reality of the world, which is as close to the truth as we can get. Now, I would say that that truth is also historically relative. It didn't matter to um, most of medieval society, whether the earth was flat or indeed whether it was turtles all the way down or not. Um, the moment that technology and human demand shift, those explanations of the world will no longer follow. And it no longer, we no longer believe in turtles all the way down. We no longer believe that the earth is flat. And I would contend that a statement that the earth is a, an oblate spheroid um, is closer to the truth about the material reality of the world 
than um, the statement that it's flat or the turtles all the way down. So we are, there are ways of saying about statements that they are more or less true. What there are about the material world, I'm not talking about historical judgments or judgments, aesthetic judgments at this particular moment, but I am talking about the material world, which is what in this context actually concerns me. When it comes to the way that as natural scientists and me as a biologist want to explore the natural world, what also happens, and maybe we'll come on to this as, as, as time goes on, is the nature of our judgments and interpretations about how the world is shift. It shifts with the nature of the technology we've got to observe the world. It's shifted between not having telescopes or microscopes and having telescopes and microscopes. And as it shifts, we see objects which are created through the very existence of our technology, of which we would have no ideas with, without. And as those objects come into view through our technology, our very definitions of the words that we use to describe them shift. And one of the examples I'd like to pick up later on is the way in which the very word gene has changed through the century plus, century and a half now, since Mendel first did his famous experiments with sweet peas. Thank you, Stephen. Hilary, does that mean that yes. truth and reality are very, very close to one another? Uh, in Stephen's definitions. Can, can, I just okay. can I just respond? I mean, obviously, I find myself on attack from both sides here, so I feel I, I, I should... I wonder have, why. But, but you knew you would I think I should at least, uh, at least make a, uh, an attempt at a defence. So the first thing about this self-referential criticism, and I, I first of all want to endorse the self-referential criticism. I, I wrote the first book I wrote some... 25 years ago, was indeed called Reflexivity, the Postmodern Predicament, which, see, which sought to outline the importance of the problem of self-reference. Indeed, the whole basis of the theoretical approach that I put forward is one which is designed to overcome the problem of self-reference in, in enabling uh, me, as it were, to account for why I can say the things that I am saying. Um, uh, how I would do that in some very simple form would be to say that we don't need to rely on some notion of truth in order to provide uh, meaning to what we, what we say. So what I try to demonstrate is that our closures can be effective even though they have no direct um, descriptive power of the world. And therefore, when I am providing my account to you, I am not, as Barry was implying, uh, wanting you to hold these as a truth. I'm wanting to say to you, hold it like this and see how it works for you and explore the metaphor that I am wanting to put to you. I don't in any sense want to propose that I am providing a final and definitive account of how the world functions and how language functions, that would be crazy. And indeed, it seems to me slightly crazy that philosophers for the last 2,000 years have engaged in this notion that maybe they have discovered how it is. Uh, I don't remotely want to do that, but what I do want to say that is if you adopt the framework of uh, uh, closure that I'm uh, describing, then 
you can, uh, I'm at, w would be in a position to explain why it works within all of its detailed precision, precisely why it is possible to get here um, and not get lost on the way, why uh, we can refer to things, why we can say President Obama is the... Uh, is the president of the US and feel that that is true and it would be wrong to say that it was Mitt Romney. How can I do that even though at the same time I'm wanting to say that these are metaphors? And of course I can't elaborate the full detail of the, uh, of the uh, account that I would want to give to you but one very simple uh, element of that which I'd want to just say in quick response would be to distinguish between the way that our metaphors work internally and the way that they work in relation to the world. So if we have a, an account in terms of, say, the number of people in this room, if we hold the wor this room as a collection of people, then we can count the, what, all of the bits that we would hold as people. And it's not like two or 5,000, it will have a number, and it will be right or wrong. But that's not to say that the metaphor, this room uh, has people in it, is an ultimate description of what is here. There is an unlimited number of metaphors that I could describe of the space that we're in, which could we could say... There's a crowd, there's um, a collection of uh, organic uh, beings, there's, a, there, there's no limit to the number of different ways we can describe this space. And within each of those descriptions, there is, there, there is an outcome to that particular narrative. But as a whole, it doesn't describe the world. It enables us to intervene to effect. But... Doesn't that just mean you're giving truth a plurality rather than, than saying it is one? There's only one description, there are many descriptions. Yeah, there are many descri exactly. I mean, look. No, no, but it's, it's a little bit, it's a, sorry, it's a little bit more than that. Well, I, let, yeah, let you, Barry come a, in. You've had a yeah, lot of I have, yeah, attempts, so and I'm still struggling to get my hands on it. Look, of course, there are many ways to describe what's in the room. I, I balk at the unlimited. Um, they're not unlimited because. Things about the room actually put limits on what we can say that we get it right. Plus, people forget when they talk about unlimited. They forget that other things, numbers can be finite. Some finite numbers are very, very large, as a mathematician once pointed out to me. So, of course, there are many ways of describing the room at the molecular level, at the cell level, in terms of gross microphysical objects like people and chairs and so on. But in describing all of these things, these are different levels of description of the same reality. And it doesn't really matter that you've got different ways of describing it. It doesn't make the world more mysterious. It just means we have a number of ways of classifying, taxonomizing it, and cutting it up. And I think Stephen will probably come back to that with the talk of genes. But um, when, we are, when we're actually in the business of getting things right or wrong, and you did actually concede something, which I want to insist on, when you said, take any of those descriptions, fix one, and then there'll be something it's right to say. That's right. So all you're talking about is the fact that we have lots of variety of languages for describing the same thing, cutting it up slightly differently, but you're still constrained to make sure those ways of describing actually match something out there. 
Now, now that's the bit the that I don't is, agree with. Truth is, I know fixing not, I, isn't about it matching. I know you don't so you agree. Fix I'm it. just trying to find a reason why you don't. But Bec- because it's to do with the way that you fix it is to enable it to be useful, not that, and to, to achieve so, some outcome. So that, for example... An outcome that you can tell you have achieved the outcome or not. Because this is, again, to suggest you're getting something right or wrong. Okay. Right but, or wrong, notice, are closely related to truth and falsity. Right. One, one uh, example of this would be in the, in the uh, film My Beautiful Mind. There's a character who looks up at the stars, the mathematician. John and, Nash. Yeah, exactly, John Nash. And he says um, to his future wife, and he's showing off to her, he says, you know, what, uh, uh, name an object, and she says, uh, an umbrella. And he says, there. And he can see the pattern of the umbrella. Now... The point of the example was that she could name anything and he could find that pattern in the stars. We don't think there is an umbrella in the stars, nor do we think that there's any connection between the umbrella and the stars, but he can find that pattern. He can hold the stars in that way. And what's more, it's useful. Because once he's identified the umbrella, he can say, look at the star just to the right of it. Look at the way that the umbrella moves across the sky as we watch the sky move. And what's more, if he then patterned the whole of the sky with those patterns, he could use it to navigate round the world. But that doesn't mean to to say that that the world is those... If there were no stars in the sky, you couldn't create an umbrella. Something about... Which stars are But the rare. stars are a word. Right. No, no, they're not a word. The stars no. are great balls of gas. No, 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 no. no, no. The stars, hold on, hold on. The stars are a word. No, no, no. You're refusing them. No, 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 you're mixing up language and reality. Hey, philosophers. Philosophers, wait a second. There's a woman here and a scientist. So we have a little different kind of realism here. Let's have a little space. I want to ask, Stephen, let me ask you, is there a way in which Hillary's use of the word metaphor, which is, of course, only one understanding of metaphor from literature, where you might think of it slightly differently, but anyhow, two, two bits coming together. Um, does science, when it, when it postulates hypotheses, do the workings of science, when hypotheses are postulated, which are, after all, forms of a kind of fiction, or perhaps a metaphorical approach to what one would want to find, is that, is that I mean, could you make a bridge there between what Hillary is saying? Well, there is a bridge. I mean, when Hillary speaks of metaphor, it's perfectly true to say that most of the ways in which scientists, um, physicists, biologists make models of the world and try to describe them is by basis of metaphor. Um, you know, the atom is like um, the solar system with the nucleus and the and the electrons rolling around it, which was a favourite metaphor back in the 1930s before the atom became deconstructed and fell into all sorts of amazing, strange and and varied particles. Um, The heart is a pump. There are a variety of ways in which you can actually use metaphorical descriptions in order to get a grip on reality and to get a grip on the world and to describe it, possibly by mathematicizing it, possibly by simply conceptualizing it in particular sorts of ways. But there are good metaphors and there are bad metaphors. There are some metaphors which are clearly wrong. There are some metaphors which are clearly, uh, clearly right. It is not true, it is not like the material reality of the world to say, 
say that um, when a substance is heated, then phlogiston is given off, for example. The phlogiston theory was replaced by oxygen theory, and oxygen theory is not merely another way of describing the world in, in Hillary's infinite view of the way the world can be described, but it is a better and more real way. It, whilst, of course... There are a very large, and I don't care whether it's infinite or, or just very large, numbers of ways of describing who, what is going on in this room at the moment, from the molecular and cellular through to the issues about consciousness or thoughts in all our individual heads and so on. Nonetheless, there are some things that we can say about this room which are true and some things we can say about this room which are false. It is false to say there is only one person in this room. It is false to say there are a thousand people in this room. And unless you actually manage to restrict something, you end up, in, in my view, in Hillary's position, in a world of blooming, buzzing confusion, which he cannot sustain, which is precisely why he had to talk about neurons and photoreceptors, as if we knew what photos and neurons, photoreceptors and neurons were. Now, these, these are, at the moment, artifacts which are observable only through the technologies of science, through the ultramicroscope, um, through staining procedures, with fixing, and so on. They are created to uh, look at through our own technologies, and yet Hillary speaks of them as if they're real. And I'm inclined to agree with him on that. Hillary. We find ourselves with a collection of words language and thoughts available to us. And they've been the outcome of previous uh, generations of people who've generated their metaphors which have proved useful for intervening in the world. Now, I think one of the reasons why Stephen and maybe Barry take such issue with the position that I'm putting forward is because they think that what I am leading to, or what this leads to, is a sort of anything-goes principle, whereby there's just a multitude of different views and uh, there's nothing to choose between them, and sort of everything is relative, including that sort of position. Now, I have to understand that on a personal level, I started out with this problem some 30 years ago, and it seemed to me one has to overcome the question of the, uh, our failure to get to objective truth and to provide a framework which makes sense of the circumstance that we can't arrive at it and yet avoids the outcome that I'm sure both, uh, both of, uh, the, the other folk on the panel wish to uh, maintain. And, and the uh, answer to, to that uh, question, I think, is... To say that the world, the way that we hold the world, is a function of metaphors is not to say that every metaphor is as valuable as every other. I could say there's a rhinoceros in this room. Now, you could find a way to, to, to close that metaphor. Maybe the rhinoceros is an angry conversation. Maybe there's a way of somehow using it to describe the, the, the character or the atmosphere of the debate. The question is what you could do with it. Is this going to be a useful metaphor? Is it one that you can do something with? And as I say, I'm wanting to advocate uh, a sort of wisdom that we choose our metaphors carefully 
and we watch what their outcomes are and we try and refine them so they work better. Now, Newton, who was a particularly good at metaphors, put forward a framework of mass, force, and acceleration, which has determined and echoed through the last few hundred years. But what was brilliant, it seemed to me, about his metaphor is that he set up a framework such that if you found anything that was in opposition to the metaphor, it didn't seem to work. So, for example, uh, you might say, it was all very well, Isaac, but um, the, the apple, most of the apples are still on the tree. You, know, you say it falls off the ground because of gravity, but most of the others are still there. And, uh, and Isaac says, well, that's because there's an equal and opposite force, rather like gravity that you can't see or identify or whatever, which is holding it there. And they say, well, it's all very well, but there is another example of something else which is not doing what I understand it should be. So, oh, well, there's always a, there's another force going on which accounts for why it's there in the first place. So the way that the, the, the Newtonian metaphor has worked is he puts in place a framework of forces which enables him to account for anything that happens. Because anything that happens that doesn't fit with what is predicted by the current forces, the Newtonian answer is, oh, well, there's another force which we haven't identified. And indeed, that's how science developed. And so now we have a very elaborate story about the way that our forces interact. That is a fantastic achievement. It's a brilliant metaphor. And we've been able to refine it and carry on refining it. And I would be the first to want to say we should continue to do so. And we do so by identifying the errors in the way that the current metaphor works and identifying where it doesn't work well and then trying to provide something new, a sort of patch, a patching exercise. Let's have something else that will try and save this original metaphor and keep it going. So, so, in, so in proposing these metaphorical, this metaphorical story about how language and thought uh, operate, I'm not in any way wanting to propose that there aren't better ones and worse ones, that there isn't a way in which we can use them to be effective and not effective. And so I think perhaps the concern uh, mm, uh, that's been expressed here isn't necessarily justified in terms of thinking about how that uh, metaphorical or story of closures actually uh, functions in practice. Barry, you're chafing. Yeah, I'm chafing. Uh, Well, let's sort some things out here. Um, So it it doesn't help, I think, in any discussion to confuse one thing with another. We have to, to use language well and carefully and, and be apt in our descriptions. We have to make sure we're talking about the right thing. So we don't want to confuse a metaphor with a theory. Of course, a theory can be built from statements that include metaphors, probably a lot of them, and maybe they're ineliminable. But that doesn't make the theory a metaphor just because it's using metaphors to construct the theory or description of the theory itself. So, so we don't separate those. Secondly, when we talk about Newton could accommodate anything, that's very loose talk. I mean, exactly what he couldn't accommodate is what led to relativity theory criticizing and displacing Newtonian mechanics. Newtonian mechanics works only if we make certain assumptions which, which we can't make or we think we can't make. So I, I think we have to... 
We have to tell the story very carefully, and we have to make sure that we're not confusing language with reality. I mean, when, when Hillary said a star is a word, no. The, the, the word made up of the configuration of letters, S-T-A-R, that's a word. But stars themselves are things which, at different periods of history, people had different views about. The ancients thought that stars were pinpricks in a fabric behind which... A fire was blazing, and that's why we had the twinkling. Now, I think it's progress to realize they're not, and that, in fact, they're great balls of gas. But it wasn't as though we just moved from one metaphor to another. No, both the ancients and ourselves were impressed by things we saw in the night sky and were trying to come up with views more or less accurate about what was responsible for the things we saw in the night sky. We didn't change vocabulary. We both had the same things in mind. We just have a better account, one that actually fits together more satisfactorily with everything else we know. Now, when Hillary, just to go back to a previous remark, when he said perhaps his account of, and I think these are metaphors that just don't work for me, I confess, holding the word and uh, world and closing it. I don't quite know what that means. But if, if, if he thinks there's an account in terms of those notions that will give a story about how he succeeds in getting here, in recognizing that you're all in the room, in knowing how to get home from here, in knowing how to navigate about the world, we might just ask ourselves whether that story, and it might be a very complicated story with lots of metaphors, is a better story than one which is much simpler, which is that we have representations in thought and language, and those representations are true, platitudinously, when how they take the world to be is how it is. And when they do that, we get a certain amount of success in dealing with the world, in getting from A to B, in satisfying our desires, in dealing with others, in coordinating with them and communicating with them. And I think if there's another story to be told, let's have it. I'm not holding my breath, but if there's another story, we should look at it. But we should always go for the account which has less of that unnecessary complexity and detour through the confusion of metaphor everywhere. Let's just stick to what we know and what we can get a handle on, I think. So, so, so I, I also want to pick up a, a couple of words that Hillary used um, and explore them a little bit further. Um, we've agreed that metaphors are very useful, but Hillary used the word useful um, quite regularly, um, and I want to also ask the question, useful for whom and for what? He also talked about a metaphor being in error. Now, what are the criteria for deciding whether a particular metaphor is in error or is not in error? And I want to give a very specific example, which doesn't go back to the ancients and to the and, and, and to, um, the, 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 the birth of modern physics. But it comes to a long and vigorous debate that was held over quite a number of years about IQ theory. That is the ways in which a theory about intelligence was defined um, and that you could rank the entire population on an IQ score. And if you rank the population on an IQ score in this particular sort of way, then it turned out that on the whole, unless you adjusted the, the, the questions, women scored differently from men, black people scored differently from white people, working class people scored, scored differently and worse than middle class people. 
Now, that was a metaphor about intelligence, which was indeed extraordinarily useful. It was extraordinarily useful for sorting out sheep from goats. It was extraordinarily useful for segregating the um, children going to past into particular classes of schools and so on. It was useful for whom? It was useful for those people who had a theory of society into which they they wished to oppose. When a lot of us, um, psychologists, biologists, um, neuroscientists and so on, criticised IQ theory from the... um, during the 1970s and 1980s, we were doing it from two points of view. We were doing it both from the argument about um, whether this actually sort of was, quote, good science, that is, their metaphor was in error, but also because it it brings back the other thing that I spoke about earlier on, and that is the pursuit not just of truth but of justice, and that IQ metaphor, which ranked people in this way, was an unjust metaphor, and that was a profound reason for rejecting it and changing it for another metaphor, which you could not do that unless you also had the way of actually sort of destroying that metaphorical account by what I would call good science driving out bad science. So the issues about what is useful, the issues about what is what is what are the criteria for defining errors and not errors, are not completely abstract, and they're not philosophical debates only. They're debates which actually sort of impinge on our day-to-day lives. And I'd like to, in, I mean, the risk of agreement, um, oh, good. Uh, uh, I'd like to endorse and agree with that. Um, it's absolutely true. I was using the word usefulness in a generic sense, but I couldn't agree more that one of the things that we have to guard against is what purpose the metaphor has, and that's why we choose one rather than another. I mean, I have, uh, uh, um, in, in other circumstances, you know, on other panels of things, uh, uh, when criticised in, in, on some similar lines, one of the uh, obvious challenges for the position that I take up is people say, well, isn't it true that... Um, are you, what are you going to say to deniers of the Holocaust... Mm-hmm. I mean, isn't this just true? And I say, well, the, by, by saying that it's true, you don't get anywhere with deniers of the Holocaust. It's no good just saying so, but it's true. Saying it's true is like a way of trying to bring an end to the conversation, as if, like, well, it's all over now, because this is just true. Well, for someone who doesn't accept that truth, that doesn't work. It's no good saying to a, a Muslim uh, bomber, uh, well, this is the Western way of saying it. it's just true. It doesn't work. What you have to do is to say, is to follow through the logic of their way of holding the world and say, if you, go, if you see the world like this, then these will be the consequences. This will be the way that you have to do it. Do you really want that? Is this a, and, of course, at some point, if they say, well, I do want that, you just say, well, actually, I'm not happy with this. I'm not happy with that story. I'm not prepared to endorse that way of holding the world. But I don't think that shoehorning truth in somehow solves the problem. And, indeed, in terms of our contemporary society, metaphors and indeed the framework of truth, is often used to defend authority. The hierarchies in society are defended by these very metaphors, and institutions defend them and use uh, the framework of language in order to, to protect their power and their position. And one of the things that we have to do is examine those metaphors and challenge them and say, no, these are not truths, they are ways of holding the world. 
and to say, no, there are alternatives. And not to be trapped by the metaphorical frame into that particular chessboard game, but to say, but does no, it no, no, a let's question, play on this board no, instead. A very specific question. Does it then become a matter of personal preference that um, you choose one metaphor, I choose another, the Muslim chooses another, the, the Holocaust denier chooses another? This yes. Is, what are the criteria, other than personal preference, then? Well, in the end, I don't think that it's because any of us can say, as it were, we have God, i.e. truth, on our side. So um, it's okay. Uh, the reason that I hold the view that I do is because that's just how it is. Uh, I don't think I can say that. So in the, in, in the limit, then you'll say, why do, I, why do I hold this? Well, because I endorse this way of holding the world. So, so your position really is an attempt to get away from a single absolute truth and say there are many descriptions. I wouldn't call them metaphors necessarily, but there are many descriptions, many different kinds of claims one can make about the world. Yes, and the reason why I don't use the word description is precisely because of the critique that Barry and Stephen attempted to allege initially, which is the self-referential one. If you operate, as so many people do in our contemporary society, in a space in which there are relative truths and different ways of seeing things, I do think you are just in a self-referential mess, because you can't explain why it is that you can, uh, that you can get out of a circumstance where you are actually asserting something generally, which is only from a relative point of view. And I don't think that does work. So instead, I think, instead of um, descriptions of the world, I would say we close the world in these ways and those closures enable us to do things. And that's how, I think, one escapes from the self-referential paradox of relativism, which indeed is everywhere. But could, could, could we just, the, the, you keep saying things which I, I, I think you're getting away with, and Stephen's just doing a fantastic philosophical job of bringing you back. But here's, here's another one, I think. So, so you wanted to say, if there's a Holocaust denier... It does nothing to say to them, but look, all of this I'm telling you is true. It does nothing just to claim truth. You have to be entitled to truth, and there's a justification that you offer in order to get at and convince people of the truth. So you mustn't confuse claims to truth with truth. Um, and the other thing that really does matter is language does matter here. So the Holocaust denier, very often when you uncover the whole set of views that they have underlying this, or indeed if you go back to the, the Nazi perpetrators themselves, they actually, part of their ideology was a, a strong conviction to accept things that were actually false, such as classifying a group of people as enemies who were not enemies and threats, they were innocent victims. Now, you had to kind of change the way in which they're being described to recognise that these are, not, these are not people you're at war with and, and against whom anything you decide to do is justified. You've got a faulty view about their status and about their involvement in society. And that, has to be, and that has to be contested. And it's because describing them that way is actually false. Right, that's a remarkable And describing idea. them as subhuman is the, the, also the, the, actually false. Well, so you have to contest those things because there are, there are claims to truth that are in fact deeply false and pernicious that we are obliged to deal with. So just saying to yourself, well, it's no good having a discussion. They have a set of views which are different from mine, as though it was perfectly coherent to have that set of views. No, because it's built on some deep falsehoods. Well, every, and there's a way of trying to make that very clear. Almost every leader 
and almost every government in the world creates enemies and threats. And they describe things that they like as in, in positive ways. And are you saying all of these, all of this manoeuvring, the, the sort of the, the uh, attempt to describe uh, uh, people as being evil or threats or, or attacks on the state, that's what every government does. It's what our and government it's not, does. It's what it's every, uh, every national government does. No, 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 and no, the, no, idea, no. the idea that you can just move in and you say, well, in this, particular, in this particular case, it's true to call these people uh, enemies and threats, um, while in this case, it, it's not true. It's just to but it is true in some cases. You have to pick and choose. Look, it's no good. You are in danger of saying everything's equal here. Some government... No, hold on. I wish you wouldn't go in for overgeneralization. It's not true that every leader says every time about every other sure. population, right? So, uh, so I, I accept the criticism. Okay, good. Yeah. So if we're more restrained, there are certain claims that are made which we recognize to be actually very dangerous and very pernicious. Now, if we can't sort the claims because you say, well, everybody does this, does that mean I'd be a fool not to? I should do it too? Or no, I uh, care? Uh, of course, right. I wasn't so saying it we, wasn't simply. I was just saying, sort? surely you're sort? not. It is obvious that sort? one person's freedom fighter is another person's enemy to the state. Surely this is obvious. And it, whether it's in Ireland and or so, whether it's in Zimbabwe or whether it's in, okay, in the I, Soviet I Union. And, and the and idea that and you can sort of slice through this and say, no, they really are a freedom fighter, they really are an enemy of the state, just seems to me ridiculous. But, but hold on. So... Let, let's move to, to the last part of this discussion. If this argument is to exist, you are both trying to get at some kind of truth, are you not? Or at least at some form of clarity of reasoning, or at least at something which is then verifiable by others. Is there anything to philosophical, philosophical discussion which is not the pursuit of truth, glossed in those various ways? I'm, I'm, going, to, I'm going to let Stephen start this one. Um. Well, I want to start it by coming back to um, a word which, again, Hillary used earlier on and take a slightly interesting, perhaps different position. He used the word holocaust. Holocaust is a metaphor. Holocaust is a metaphor which has actually come to take on a life of its own. That is, you can be, quote, a Holocaust denier. You can be, use the Holocaust in order to defend the ways in which the Israelis treat the Palestinians currently in, in Israel-Palestine. The, the word Holocaust and the metaphor of the Holocaust has become a political weapon which is used in a variety of ways. So metaphors go into orbit. They take on their own life, and by achieving their own life in that sort of way, they can do immense harm... Um, and this, this I th uh, one of the things that, uh, coming back to the issue about si science and models and metaphors earlier on, is that, and I think Hillary will probably agree with this, is if you look through the history of science, the metaphors and models which are used are constantly useful at one point, um, as close to understanding the world as we can get to in one point, but then become a constraint on thinking and a way that we can no longer think. A very good example of that is the way that, um, that DNA was the gene, DNA was an informational macromolecule back in the 50s and 60s, um, and a way which shaped the whole development of a particular science in a particular way, but that is now a metaphor which is a constraint on thinking, and um, most modern geneticists are moving way, way beyond thinking of it like that. 
So, are there pursuits other than the pursuit of truth which actually sort of philosophers should be concerned with? Well, I'm sure that both Hillary and Barry would agree that, yes, pursuit of justice, the understanding of the whole terrain of moral philosophy seems to me profoundly important in this particular area. And these reflect truths on which I don't think the natural sciences have any purchase, though I suspect that no social sciences may very well do. But beyond that, I would leave it to the philosophers. Well, philosophers, Barry, shall I give you the next word? Um, I think I I want to agree with uh, Stephen entirely on that. There are some curious uh, things that surround both science and the arts in that scientific models, as Stephen says, are often built as models which include idealizations, so statements that are literally false about the world. You, know, you, you talk about an environment in which nothing else intervenes and there are no other variables present. So we know that the models are false, and yet somehow when we discover within a limited model domain some laws about how the phenomena are behaving, we seem to get at truths that we can then apply to the, to the bigger, wider world. And so it's interesting, why can fiction and models in science are given that they're literally tr- false sometimes, are kind of fictions. How can fiction still give you a guide to reality? That's, that's, I think, an interesting thing, and philosophers are puzzled by that. It's also true in literature. In literature, you're creating fictive worlds. You've got fictional characters who move us deeply in, and there's a kind of truth-telling in good fiction and in, in the arts, which can get through to us, but it's very difficult to understand how it's doing that, since these characters don't exist, and we know they don't. And we believe they don't, and yet we're still moved to tears. So there are ways in which um, we have learned something very important for ourselves and indeed for our our societies through science and through uh, literature, which are not based on the standard views of truth. So I think these things are delicate, and I think uh, they're worthy of philosophical attention, and I think they're getting them. But they wouldn't happen at all if there wasn't a, a bedrock of sort of everyday truths that we rely on and that after he's come out of this room, Hillary will rely on too. Hillary. Well, uh, Are there alternatives uh, uh, to the pursuit of truth? Uh, I think there are in this sense that the example of the Holocaust, as you rightly say, is a, is a very good example for me of, an, of how closure functions. Someone comes up with the initial closure, Holocaust, and they use it to effect... They use it to affect, to, to draw attention to the appallingness of the circumstance. It's then applied and used by others. It's sometimes then moved and applied metaphorically to other situations. People carry the strength of the closure in one place to apply it in something else. And my, in terms of what uh, we might do with our thinking, what, what, what might be an alternative to truth, I proposed initially that maybe uh, uh, some sense, uh, uh, I said wisdom, but I'm, I'm not sure what else, uh, what other term that one can initially use, but it's the idea that we have these options to choose between. The judgment is, do we want to use this closure holocaust? Do we think that it's the right one to choose in this space for the effect that it will have? And there are many aspects and consequences of that. And the reason why I'm wanting to put an alternative to truth is because I think that it's often quite dangerous and constraining. It makes it look as if there is just the one answer, as if we might actually arrive and get there, as if 
the things that we regard as being truths are somehow written in stone and we don't have to re-examine them and check whether there might be better ways of doing it. So on the one hand, I want to advocate a sort of wisdom that we can hold in our, our, our mind alternatives, but also that we should try and find new ones and see what's wrong with our current ones and that, that, uh, that truth is, is, is a conservative idea in, in the sense that it, it just holds on to what, what we have and that what, one, what we should be looking for is the potential of what thing that we can do that is new. Well, you sound like an artist, and at this point I'm going to open it up to all of you for questions and, indeed, comments, um, without trying to sum this up, because perhaps each of the speakers will think at the end that there is one uh, illumination, (laughs) one piece of wisdom, one piece of clarification, or one description that they want to give us. Um, Right, I'll start here, and then to you, and to you. I think if they're not too complicated, I'll take two or three at a time, or would you like them individually? Two or three at a time. Okay, what was missing from the discussion, if any sense, uh, that we're uh, transitioning from a textual culture to a multimedia culture? And as a result, the whole culture of truth is about to be completely transformed. All our ideas of scientific, objective truth or probabilistic truth are based on symbolic descriptions of the world. And the whole discussion was all about language, logic, and maths. But we're now moving into where images become important. And as soon as you move into images, everything is totally changed. Because it's one thing to sort of, uh, uh, um, you know, if you say, if I take a picture of Lisa, is this a true picture of Lisa? It's absurd. The whole culture, you know, it's, you, there are, you, you, you're going to learn a new culture, which is, what is the point of view? The colouring, the uh, sort of position, uh, the framework, perspective. And uh, Lisa offered the most important uh, concept here, which was pluralistic truth. As soon as you move to images, there are pluralistic truths. And truths are also partial. Science talks about truth, but the arts talk about realism. Uh, I I really want to say screw metaphor, it's neither here nor there. (laughs) The arts are realistic. They are truthfully portraying the world. But it's a totally different kind of truth to uh, scientific. And we're going to have to learn that. And we are about to learn that. Okay. I think Barry wanted to come straight back. Yeah. Images. Right. So images are also dangerous. In law courts, you would be amazed at how well a jury is disposed to go with the uh, prosecuting lawyer when he puts up some neuroimaging data. If you just put it up... now. I know this will come as a shock to some of you, but you know when people talk about the brain lighting up, it actually doesn't. It doesn't light up. That's the blobs. Mine on does. The, that's the blobs on the on the slides, which are created, as you know, from the bold signal and from the fact that you're getting uh, blood flow as a good hypothesis, an indication of effort and, and activity in a particular area of the brain. But when you when you use images. And lawyers are very worried about this, and I think rightly so. When they when when they say, "Well, of course, you know, this person was showing all sorts of dangerous tendencies. You know, look at how uh, how little activity there is in the anterior cingulate cortex." And they put it up. Very dangerous because people think the images are much more important. Which would you rather have? I would rather have well reasoned. I would. I, I I know which I'd rather have. I'd rather have somebody telling me. What resolution did you use to decide that that was significantly six? statistically significant as a way of measuring activity. And also, 
when that piece of the cortex is active, what else isn't active and does that need not to be active for this to happen or, or can you actually pin everything down to this particular region? So I'd like a reasoned discussion of it. I don't want another image. Another image won't satisfy So you me. would prefer a newspaper article of Bin Laden being killed to the movie, a movie on the spot of Bin Laden being killed? I think, I'm kind, of queasy. Like I think I'm kind of queasy, so I guess I, the answer is yes. <laughs> Which one? You prefer a newspaper? Yeah, yeah. Well, then you're, that's why you're in the old... You're, you're medieval. Basically, you're not... You haven't advanced... Not, it's, uh, but images lie. We know this. We've always had images. Well, images lie. Images. And when you talk well, about medieval, we've always had images. When the, no, people, when the people were illiterate, what you did was show them images of, of saints holding up churches. It was a disaster. The, counter-revel- the counter-reformation propaganda that came from that was very, very dangerous, actually. All right, and that is the Plato... You're, you're expressing the, 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 the Platonic philosopher thing, which, and the scientific no Plato, thing, which has gunned down images and considered images as being fictional for 2,000 years. Okay, let, let, can we hold that and take some more questions, and then we'll... we'll there was one... Good rant, though. Um, back there, yes. Um, so, uh, within, within science, within biology, uh, your conclusions are constantly being limited by, and this is being discussed, by the quality of your instruments, by the biases that you bring to your analysis, by the field that you're trying to fit it into. So, in that sense, do you think that there can never be an objectively incorporated truth in biology, or just the best fit to the data that you've currently got, something that's constantly being updated? And that wasn't constantly just sufficient. Well, I, mean, I think the answer to that is exactly as you put it, and that is that um, we create what we're looking at to a considerable extent by the technologies that we've got, and they are indeed precisely, as you said, shaped by the expectations that we bring. And the expectations that we bring come, in, in my view, in two ways. It's the uh, partly the very history and trajectory, the way that we've been formed as scientists, that is the way we have grown up with a particular set of assumptions, but also the sort of assumptions that come from outside, from, the, from, from culture, from the media, and the translate, transition of metaphors from, to come back to Hillary's use of the word metaphors, from the broader culture into and out of science. Look at the way that scientists now speak of um, reading the DNA code, of translating DNA into RNA, of editing, of script writing, and so on. Um, and the way that these, te- these fre- metaphors from science, sciences then refract back into society. Um, you know, compassion is in the DNA of the Conservative Party, said David Cameron, for example. <laughs> well, you can see the way these work. And that is, that is precisely the, the, the dilemma that all of us actually face. And faced with a particular situation in a laboratory, an experiment I designed, when I tried to do exactly what Barry described as impossible, and that is hold all the external variables constant, except the one thing I want to modify. I'm making an abstraction of the world, and making that abstraction of the world gives me a partial uh, understanding of a particular phenomenon in a particular context, which I then have to fit into everything else. So indeed, it is transitional, it's historically relative, and it will change with the technologies and with our own understanding. But it doesn't mean that it's not also progressive in the sense that I think those understandings are closer to the way the world is than the ones that have gone before. 
I think one of the words we haven't mentioned here is technology. I mean, we have in the sense that, you know, we talk about photographs and giving us a rendition of things, that what you create in the lab is there through technology as much as anything else. Is technology our, our, our um, way of arriving at truths, or is it something that, then, that could also distort it? I mean, what, where? Well, I would start with Hillary's example of what you see and your, what your eyes are doing. And our technologies are, in a sense, an extension of our senses, an extension of our eyes and our ears and, 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 and our other senses. And in the sense that they're an extension, those technologies, they give us an enriched understanding of the world, but with precisely the sort of limitations that, that, that Hillary spoke of at the very beginning. Uh, if I could just come on, because I think the question you asked there is, is this, uh, can, we, can we ever do more than get a better fit in our model and of course I'm going to say we can't, that's what we should do, we should be trying to get a, a, a better fit, we should try and get the model to work better and my, uh, my question to those who, who think that, uh, that we might be able to uncover truth is why is it that this is we don't appear to be able to do this why is it that we seem to get so close with our models? And one of the strange experiences, I think, is the more you're actually in the detail of a model, the more you are aware of the ways in which it fails. And, and the, the harder you try and get it to work, the, the more that you're forced to abandon it. And uh, uh, so the framework that I'm putting forward, in a way, is one which is trying to explain that very experience. I mean, Stephen Hawking himself has shifted, it seems to me, in the last 20-odd uh, years from a situation in which he thought that somehow science might uncover the mind of God, which I understand as a sort of realist position, although it's a rather strange metaphor he used, but, but um, to one where he now appears to be endorsing a notion that what uh, physicists do is to operate within alternative models, and that's the best that we can hope for. And my puzzle to those like Barry would be, if that's the the best that can hope for, why should this be the case? If, if there is a reality or a truth, wh wh why can we only operate within these models? Um, it's not the best you can hope for, I think. I mean, look, you need to take Beckett's advice. He said, fail and fail better. You know, so um, you, you have to keep trying. It, it's, it's not because you struggled to understand objectivity and, as you said, kept failing to get it, that we should give up. I mean, it's a struggle, of course, and we think that Little by little, chipping away, we make a bit of progress. We no longer believe that the, uh, that the Earth uh, uh, has the sun going around it. We, we no longer believe that, you know, uh, it, it's, it's in, that water is entirely made of atoms which cannot be uh, dissected and dissolved into anything smaller. You know, we are making little bits of progress here and there. And I think it's just wrong to point to particular limitations of very detailed branches of science at a time and then say that recommends a whole story about how we're out of touch with reality. If we were so out of touch with reality, we would not be moving around and developing the kind of technologies that get us you know, to manipulate the world in quite so sophisticated a way, and which you rely on. I think that there's definitely a little movement, Hillary. You know, I'm a woman. I'm on a panel which is discussing philosophy. Um, I think 
up until the Enlightenment, certainly that would have been impossible, and probably quite a lot of the time since. So, so I'm not arguing. I'm not arguing about. I'm not saying that there's no there's no progress. Quite quite the reverse. Uh, I think that we should try to improve our our, our models and our metaphors and our metaphors. And my and my puzzle is that yes, we can make progress and, and, and we can and we can and, and we can improve things. But the strange thing is that we don't arrive. That's the puzzle. Why is it that, that we seem to be so close, but objective truth just eludes us? And I, I think we need an alternative story which accounts for why that's the case. It's objective and, truth and enables us to... Okay, I'm going to take some more questions. There's one in the back waiting patiently, and there was a woman there, and then another one behind. Can you speak up? I had a question for Hillary, um, which was, what did you mean when you, uh, in response to what Stephen was saying, you said, no, it's true, I was emphasising usefulness. Mm-hmm. You seem to be very, very sure about something you were saying about the world, it happened mm-hmm. to be a thought you had mm-hmm. about the world, you were trying to clarify that, but you were very, very convinced of, of something you were telling us was true, which was mm-hmm. that you thought X. So yes. a statement about the world, how, how does... Well, of course, I, I, I can use the word truth in the same way as that everybody else does as a reinforcement of the strength of my belief in that way of holding it. That's what we do. We use the framework of language and the words that we've got. That's, that's what we've got. We have a sense of, of uh, how we use those things. But my, my comments about sort of the metaphysical truth, the sense that we might be able to arrive uh, at, at something, would wouldn't I think be jeopardised with that but, but by that and I, and I think you know the, the, the caricature of my position and at various points with different people I've, I've had to defend these things it is, is precisely that well you know can you find your way home can you uh, well of, of course I, I will use the same frameworks as everybody else but I think the maps that we use to get home are not uh, descriptions of reality. They are indeed tools. There are useful maps and unuseful maps. There are maps which are accurate and inaccurate. That they enable you to get home. But the, why, but the underground map is not the same thing unless as... Unless they're representing reality correctly. They're not the same thing as reality. No, 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 they, no nobody they, said that. They, they are tools to enable us to get around. So if we use the why underground map, why it enables... Why do they work? Uh, for the same reason that when you saw that umbrella in the sky, it works to be able to say, look at the star that's just to the right, track it across the sky. It doesn't mean to say, this is the, this is the sort of uh, so illusion believing of... believing it firmly, believing it firmly is the same as it being accurate and true. You see, you could believe something very, very firmly. You believe that getting on this train will take you to Nottingham, but however much you believe it... It, your belief is answerable to whether that train goes there or not. Uh, and it's not up to you to believe and make it true. See, Hillary no, doesn't distinguish... I'm not arguing that, you, but you I'm did, not You did, because when, no. when the man at the back... I do think Hillary was arguing that. I think he was arguing that. I, I, well, <laughs> well I, I'm sure that, that, that's not... I've spent a long let, let time me take some to, Let me take some more questions. Not, um, there. It's going to be a little bit controversial. I wonder how the panel would answer my charge to them that the debate around philosophy... Uh, this evening has been a display of utterly sterile and circular argument uh, stuck to 207, uh, sorry, uh, 2,700 years ago at the sophist circle that Socrates decried. I've been thoroughly uninspired and I've not 
sensed any sense of adventure in any three of you. And I think, and I think that the chair has not done her job. <laughs> so, would you, would you like to put a question to them which would do it? How answer this charge? Bearing in mind that I left right. home in Surrey at five o'clock to be here this evening for the first time at LSE, wanting to be inspired, challenged, <laughs> and this has been a total... Oh, I'm so sorry. Philosophy is much too precious to be left in the hand of uninspired, overpaid <laughs> academics. <laughs> Right, would you like to answer this question? <laughs> Briefly. Hey, I'm not a philosopher. I'm Italian, by the way. Does that explain B. everything? <laughs> B, I'm a neuroscientist. I do think that neuroscience is a very exciting area of discussion, but it wasn't one that we were briefed to be talking about this t t today. You want me to try to inspire you about what brain science can do? I should be very happy to spend another session trying to do that. But we're not going to try to inspire you to discuss, as it were, the nature of reality. But in order to actually understand what neuroscience can do, and I'm sorry you haven't found this, this satisfactory to you, we have to be able to understand precisely the points that were made by the gentleman at the back there about where our scientific ideas come from, how they can relate and match to the world around us. Otherwise, you will be doing precisely the thing that you're objecting to on, 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 on the part of the panellists here. And we have to answer those questions. We have to answer questions about what are priorities, what are the issues we ought to be seeking, why is our science moving in particular directions or another, why do we seek genes to treat obesity rather than look at the obesity epidemic in the world, in the, in the, in the country in which we're living. And those are fundamental questions which are about metaphors, reality, and the directions of science. And I think they're exciting and important questions. And if anything I've said hasn't inspired you to think that they're exciting, and important questions. That's my failure. Now, can I also agree with you? I, I think you're absolutely right. Uh, but, but we have to... <laughs> no, I, I, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not being facetious. We have to work with the script we're given. So I agree with you that I think I hear from Hillary, although he's talking about a new way, I hear a kind of sophistry, a kind of scepticism that's very old, and that, you know, that would have been very well understood by the pre-Socratics. You know, you had people in those days who said, you know, we're all made of water. And, you know, somebody might say, well, you don't look as though you're made of water, and I'm sitting here at a table. And, and, the, and these people weren't stupid. They say, well, that's exactly the kind of argument that appeals to people made of water. You know, so, so of course, that sophistry is very hard to argue with. You've got to show how its deep presuppositions are wrong. So I agree. I think... When we're arguing with sophistry, someone's got to do it, because otherwise it might just persuade one or two people. But like Stephen, I think there are much more interesting things that philosophers and philosophers and neuroscientists together are working on. We were talking about our senses, the fact that people think they've got five senses, and yet you know, if you ask more in neuroscience, they'll say anywhere between 22 and 33 senses. So that's a very radical view of how things are. And also, we used to think the senses worked independently, that you, know, you see, you hear, you smell, you touch, you and they all work in their own little way. And now we know they're much more interactive, and it's actually quite difficult to, to talk about an experience that's just visual or just auditory, as though the other senses were suspended and were not making their impact. So the way we understand our experience and the way our experience is shaped by perception is changing radically. And if we had a chance to talk about those things, I think we needn't 
worried at this office. I think we're getting on and we're making progress. So I agree with you. Um, can I just say, A, I'm not an academic. B, um, I'm a little bit Italian. And C... <laughs> <laughs> Um, the pursuit of adventure when you're not talking about truth is a very different topic than if you're actually specifically asked to talk about philosophical truth. But let me take another question. Oh, gosh, lots now from you. Um, this is sort of about truth. This is sort of about technology. This is sort of about visual and, and, and several points along the way. There is a piece in today's New York Times in the opinion section about a woman in Denver who has, uh, whose brain does not process um, any sense of direction. She has no sense of orientation. She gets lost in her own neighborhood. It's nothing to do with her intelligence. And it's fascinating because of her perceptions of the world and how she needs to maneuver in it. Um, I happen to believe that art is a reflection of, of behavior and not of reality. But, um, and then you, what is behavior? But, um, with, with technology, suppose a person has a scan and then learns later that the scan was not done properly, but there's an image created by the scan and various people are interpreting it even though the scan was not done properly and interpreting those images as truth. Discuss. <laughs> <laughs> well... I have no answer to this. Actually, I mean, sort of firstly, I'm interested in your phrase, the scan done properly. Uh, because as Barry pointed out early on, what you see when a scan is made in that sort of way is profoundly misleading in a number of ways, even if it is, quotes done properly. Because it's mathematically manipulated, you have to make decisions which are made by algorithms, by complicated statistical and mathematical procedures to say what is significant and what is not significant. If you see a vastly amplified, quote, region of the brain lighting up, um, the question of the implication of that brain lighting up is actually, sort of, is actually not at all clear. It may be lighting up because neurons are, are being inhibited in that area and blocking them requires that. It may be lighting up because it's a, a passage from one region to another. Um, to come back to a metaphor used a long time ago by um, the, the great Richard Gregory, if you're, it was a long time ago, as you'll see. If you're listening to a radio and it emits a howl and you take a transistor out, you're listening to a Beethoven symphony, and you take the transistor out and you get a howl instead of the Beethoven symphony, it doesn't mean that the function of the transistor is as a howl suppressor. It means that you're looking at the function of the system in the absence of that particular region. In the case of the individual in the, um, which you're describing in the New York Times, um, if it were an issue which was about uh, br brain damage, it would be most likely to be associated, we would believe now, with some hippocampal problems which are associated with locating oneself in space. Um, and these are experiments which can be done both with animals and with disorienting people in the laboratory. So there are ways of understanding those. Um, and it's not just mediated through that sort of technology, but others as well. But technology speaks, but technology can also lie. Okay, um, you had a question here and then there. Thank you. Uh, I, I guess I was shocked by a throwaway comment that uh, Hillary made at one point. Truth is conservative. I think I know what you mean. I mean, especially when you talk about power structure, 
talking to preserve the power structure. But then I was thinking about Galileo, and of course in that example, truth was not conservative. It was the rock, it was, the error was conservative. Mm. But then I thought about the fact that um, a lot of our everyday actions, stuff that works, that holds, it's actually extremely conservative and wrong. Um, we still believe kind of in our daily walking pat pattern. Earth is flat, the sun goes around. The, I mean, our language and the way we think about the world is still incredibly old compared to what we, I mean, we are at least two stages. I mean, we're not even Newtonian. We're not even certainly mm -hmm. Einsteinian. Mm -hmm. But it sort of works. Mm -hmm. So I guess my, 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 my question to, mainly to uh, Hillary, although I, 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 I agree more with the criticism, is mm -hmm. it seems like a pragmatic notion that you are, are, are driving at as to uh, how we go through life. You know, if something works, then let's, let's, let's roll with it, so to speak. Mm -hmm. um, I guess for a long, long time, a lot of things that are completely wrong works. Mm -hmm. And when you encounter someone who denies the opposite or associate or does the opposite of what you think is correct, so they go, they go, how do you then confront them? I mean, because like, I am not a religious. Most of my peers in this world, mm -hmm. certainly in America, are religious. Mm -hmm. uh, now, I don't go around all day long yelling and screaming at them because they're wrong. I mean, I could be wrong, right? There's a certain mm -hmm. high probability that I could be wrong in some, in some way, too. So I hold the world to be one where I don't argue with people who have strongly beliefs, mm -hmm. strong beliefs in religion, just because, yeah, from, from experience, it's just not a fruitful way of going through life. But just because I hold that position doesn't mean that I don't. If, I, if I'm in a choir room, maybe in a monastery or something, I might come up with a very different view. But, you know, I'm a human being. I don't want to, you know, have people you know, screaming and yelling at so I'm kind of curious as to whether this is just some sort of pragmatism or do you really believe that we well, put so much emphasis on the notion of truth that maybe we should just dispense with it and therefore we just have a nicer life? Well, the, the paradox really is that actually I'm an arch-rationalist. So that despite the appearance that some people make the mistake of thinking that I'm putting some, some fluffy, uh, easygoing sort of story about how we should operate in the world together. Uh, I think it's, when it comes to the detail of the operation of a uh, metaphor or closure, I want to be rigorous about where it is not working because it is the errors that enable us to, to uh, refine and uh, discover new metaphors which allow us to deal better with that bit of the world. So it's not somehow with this uh, that we can just sort of amble along. Um, but I do think we have to, to use the closures which work so that Newtonian science was very powerful in its description of the planets. But if you were a farmer and you were trying to decide when you should pick your apples, it wouldn't be terribly good to try and work out when the apples were ready for picking based on all of the forces that were going on and all of the uh, 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 Newtonian uh, structure. It would be much better to say, well, actually, about this time of year, when we get this sort of weather and the colour of the apples, it's the time to pick them. And that's because it's a better metaphor. That's a better metaphor for deciding when to pick your apples. And, 
And in each case, you could try and refine those. So you could get somebody who's really good as a farmer at determining just when it's right to go out and pick the apples, just as you could have a really good physicist who would say, there's a problem with our understanding of the way that... Uh, the uh, forces are working in this to, 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 refi- to refine them. So uh, I, don't think, uh, I don't think it's pragmatist in the way that you understand it to be pragmatist. It's just I don't think we need to hold on to this notion that we are somehow arriving at some perfect way of doing things. And indeed, that it encourages is to have more adventure, to somehow think maybe there's an alternative way of holding this. Maybe there's a way that we could do this which would uh, enable us to understand it differently and more powerfully. Okay, I'm going to take one more question. I'm sorry. sorry, sorry can, before, can I just, can I just say, very importantly, your first point was we go around using vocabulary which you know isn't actually literally true. We say the sun sets over there, right? Now, you've still got to give an explanation of why it works to say that. And, of course, the beautiful explanation was the one that Wittgenstein gave to Mrs. Anscombe when, when Elizabeth Anscombe said, you can see why people thought that the sun went round the earth. And he said, why? And she said, well, because it looks that way. And he said, and how would it look if the earth went round the sun? One more question there. I've just got two very quick ones. The first one, I found to hear that Perry wanted new theories, but surely we want new and better, not just new for the sake of new. And second of all, I was surprised to hear that you seem baffled by the idea that it's getting harder to get closer to the truth and, and to get better scientific theories. I did a master's degree in philosophy here, and I'm now a physics teacher, and my pupils always say, why were there so many discoveries Back then, it's so few now, mainly because they learn the old ones and not so much the new ones. But I, my answer is always, well, the less you know, the easier it is to make progress. And it's like a line heading towards an asymptote. The more we know, the harder it is to get better, whether you're trying to get 100% in a test, becoming a better ice skater, becoming a better anything, the more, the better you are. Could you imagine a situation in 100 years' time where we've sorted it, where... No, you, you now could say, this is, we, we, we've, worked, we've worked out the, the uh, laws of the universe, we understand how it all works, we don't need to have any more scientific labs, we don't need to explore any more, because we've arrived. And why, why is the answer no, no? I do want to say there's a lot to know. Okay, I'm going to take this. In 10,000 years, can we, ever, can we imagine we could ever be in that position? But I think that doesn't mean it doesn't well, if we can never be in that position, why can't it be? Why can't we be? This is the pursuit of adventure. This is where you've got your one minute each as we sum up to pursue the great adventure, which is perhaps not at all linked to truth. Stephen. Some objective truths are more objective truths than others. Um, Some that, truths are better that the than earth is in a great spiral is, in fact, seems to me to be part of not an issue which is going to be raised at any time in the future in terms of scientific understanding or cultural understanding about the, the nature of the universe. Why I'm saying that is because, um, let's put it like this, in a very simple way, physics is easy, biology is hard. The areas of problem we're actually dealing with at the moment, I've been talking about, of uncertainty and changes in metaphor and so on, have come primarily out of biology, not just because I'm a biologist, because in certain areas, certain areas of science are closed um, chemistry, for example, is closed and doesn't present the same sorts of problems that we're discussing otherwise here. Much of physics is closed. Of course, there's more to be discovered about material properties and so on. 
but the, the, the issues about objective truth are not there in the same way as they are in areas of science that I've been discussing this evening. And that's, I think, where the metaphors become important. Um, so finally, watch what your metaphors are. You never know where they have come from. Hilary, your pursuit of adventure. Well, I, I think all I would like to leave the thought with is that we all would like to believe that our position is true. That somehow we could... I mean, parents often do this with children. Why should they do Well, it's just true, or it's right. And it's like it, it, it ends the conversation. It's like, well, we know where we are now. And I, like the others, want to see development and better ways of holding the world, which would made us to do new things and more successfully and to organise culture and our lives in a more productive way. But I think we have to give up on the idea that we ever might be right and that we might have somehow discovered uh, this truth because that's not, I think, the way that our language and our thought work. It just doesn't do that sort of thing. So I think our language and thoughts doing pretty well. I mean, we're not so confused by it as as, as philosophers will tell you. Uh, we seem to get we seem to get by. You know, we we, you know, we, we muddle along. But uh, I think there is quite a lot of settled science, as Stephen says. And then the question is, on those other bits of science where we're not making progress, what's actually going to help? And I think one could see Hillary saying, "Well, you know, try thinking in a new way. Try using different metaphors." Sure. But by and large, the people who do that, the people who really, really move a science along by thinking radically differently about a, a particular domain, about a particular field, are people who thought very, very hard and in real detail about what we do know. And then, for reasons that might be quite accidental, they have a shift of mind. And those insights, those deep insights that suddenly transform a field, they're invaluable and they're very rare. But we... We would, I think what's going to help individuals to get there, to do that, is they have to be incredibly willing to read and listen to and attend to things outside their field. I always tell my graduate students who, who become a little bit too professionalised, they say, I'm not going to this lecture because it's not on my topic. And you want to say, listen, try going to all of these things that are not in your field because while you're there and thinking so hard about your own work, an idea might come and you might just see a move that's going on in a completely different branch of philosophy and think, my goodness, I could apply it here. And the, and the mind turns because real progress is made by ideas whirling silently in large minds and we have to oil them and make sure they can work properly. But it only comes from hard work and imagination. Well, thank you very much to all my panellists and thank you to all of you. I just want to leave you with this thought because I've come away from trying to finish a book which is really about, the, about crimes of passion and the intersection between the law and psychiatry or, if you like, the inter intersection of evidence and that kind of evidential truth and the truths of the emotions. And it's not the same as what we've been doing. You haven't helped me at all, but perhaps later on you will. Um, thank you all for being here, and, and thank you to How the Light Gets In. I hope some of you will get up to hate for the festival.